Hello, everyone. This is W, host of the High Art on the Edge page. Welcome to Surprise Cast. Across the screen for me is a singer, songwriter, all the way from Scotland, a former drum machine operator and percussionist for the Galloping Gunshot Boys, now guitarist for the indie alternative legends Trash Can Sinatras. He just released a brand new sparkling self-titled acoustic album, Back in October of 2023, received some really glowing, positive reviews. We will talk about that album in a little bit. Let us bring in John Douglas from the Trash Can Sinatras. How are you, John? I'm very good. I'm very, very good. I've got my cat joining me here. That's Molly just popped her head in. Well, hello to Molly and hello to you. And thank you so much for being part of this surprise cast. A nice cheers to you. Cheers to you. Pleasure Uh, to be here. Happy New Year. You know, oh. I was I was thinking about how I wanted to start this conversation. Uh-huh. And I'm going to start it this way. I'm going to start with your last name, Douglas. Okay. And the meaning of it. And I did a little bit of homework. And it came up with Black River, Dark Stream. Does that sound correct? Mm-hmm. Black Water, I think, would be the, the, the translation I have. But that all fits. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, Dove is the Gaelic or the Gaelic verb for black, and the glass is either river or water. I think the older you get, a lot of a lot of folks start to look into that kind of thing: your ancestry and your roots and where you come from, and things like that. Where the, the derivation of the name and all that. And I've got I've got two strands of family. My my father is the, the Douglas, obviously, and they're, they're very Scottish. They go back until records run out, you know, in the kind of Fife Stirling area. So just very, 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 very Scottish, on you know, undiluted Scottish. And my mother's side is Irish from Connemara. Her her maiden name is Keen. And uh, her the, the major sort of finding when I went into looking at that stuff was the, the musical history in, in my in my mother's side of the family. There's a few I grew up on the west coast of Scotland and my mother and father from Glasgow. And in those areas the Irish community, when they came over, mostly after the famine, there was a big sort of influx of Irish sort of labouring workers. And when these things happen in areas, there can be friction. And there was very, there was religious issues as well. Glasgow at the time was very Protestant sort of city. So suddenly there's a lot of Catholic people arriving. So a lot of tension. So when my mother was growing up and she moved down to Ayrshire where I was born, that side of the family was sort of kept quiet. You know, because it could affect your work prospects and that kind of thing. Not in a major way, but now and again, things would arrive and you'd think, oh, my mum would say I was, you know, I was just as well. I didn't mention what's, you know, where, how I was brought up kind of thing. All very silly, but, you know. So when I got older, I, asked, I started asking her about that, that side of the family. And she said we're, we're from a place called Glinsk in Connemara, which is out in the west of Ireland. Well, they still speak the Irish language and a very ancient sort of culture. And uh, I found out that my granddad, my granddad's name was uh, John, John Keane, and his brother was a guy called Colin Keane, okay. who is a very well thought of Irish singer and, and songwriter from, he died, when did he die? I think he died in the 80s, 1980s. But in his, his history is amazing. He, he became, when he was like 40 or something, 
in the 1940s, he got visited by Seamus Innes and Alan Lomax, who were recording just the kind of the old songs, trying to capture the old songs. And, and Seamus Innes, I don't know if you know, he's a very famous piper and, and a great sort of a archivist of Irish music. Long gone now, but. And he, uh, he became great friends with my great uncle, got lots of songs off him, and they're all, I got access to them, and the, they're in the University College Dublin. They've got a folklore society, and they've got an archive. And when I walked in there and mentioned who I was and who I was related to, they were like, oh, you've got to see this, come in and see all this stuff. And there's a book now about them, so it's quite well documented. And uh, for me, growing up, I never knew there was music in the family. So I've, I've, and it really drove, it was kind of, it was like a possession. You know, we were talking earlier about teaching being a kind of vocational job. Mm-hmm. With me, music was a kind of vocational thing. Everything else just became secondary. And I just, I, I always wondered why I was so driven by it. And then to discover that there was songwriting and musicianship going back generations and generations and on the other side, that it just helped me be okay with myself. Yeah. You know, there was a sense of roots there and a sense of it. You know, stuff in the DNA that you can't really, you don't have a lot of control over. So this is what I really appreciate appreciate about you is that um, you are so steeped in your history, in your culture, in music, in the arts. I want you to take us to a very special time in your life, a memory of when you were a child. Something that still stands with you in your mind. Something it could be positive, it could be negative, either one. Um, that's, my memory is a is a sieve, <laughs> but there is there's a, there's glimpses I have at sc- of school and, and and being very young. I kind of I think I lived in my imagination quite a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't very sporty, but I would, you know, I'd be I'd be superheroes flying through the through the trees and running through the street. I read a lot of books when I was a kid and was drawn to to that, 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 the imagination. My mother said when I was five, we were on a bus and we were going past a graveyard and she says, look, and I said, oh, look at all the chessmen in there. You know, so she was like, what's that? That's not chessmen, it's graves. But I, I, when she told me that, I thought, oh, that's, that's a good, I quite like that, seeing something, you know, seeing some, some sort of poetry and, and imagery and something that was kind of mundane. Yeah. Um, but as far as something striking, I remember it when I was like five or six, maybe a little older. It's in the primary school I was at, they had a show. They would have a show at the end of every year. And I remember there was a kind of, I took part in it once and I didn't tell my mother. I was like, a, it was a bunch of kids and I was one of them. And they would, it was a song where I'd take a verse each. And my mother was sitting in the front, front, front row and I took a verse. I came out and sang a verse and my mother's just face was like, what are you, what are you doing? And as soon as I stepped out, she was like, no, what's happening? Why is he in? And I remember the kind of notion of, you know, just being applauded for something. And it really was like this alien experience, you know, this, uh, this kind of, it probably did change things, you know, that, and I ended up, you know, spending a lot of my life on stage. So that was probably a bit of subconsciously quite a kind of formative experience that was super young. I would have been seven or eight or something. How would your relatives or mom describe you? As a child, <laughs> probably a bit distracted. <laughs> I think I was quite a positive child, you know. I, in, in fact, I've always been quite optimistic. I don't think I was. Uh, there might. Have, I don't think I was sullen, you know. But yeah, I think I was quite positive and in, in, in up for doing stuff. As I got to my teenage years, 
I just, I just, I don't know. I've always found life very exciting and things really magical, you know, whatever, whatever they are. And that's, I don't know if I was a bother, you know, I wasn't academically strong. You know, I'd be dreaming of stuff and staring out the window and music would be in my head constantly. But yeah, I think my mum, I wasn't in any trouble. You know, I was all right. <laughs> did, did you, can you recall any really impactful invaluable life lessons when you were growing up something that kind of still resonates with you could be something that involved with a relative or a friend or a parent i don't know there's a few things i was brought up in a catholic family and when i was young that was very strong my mother would go to mass every sunday the notion of sin was very prominent and there's a thing that, I mean, when I got to my teenage years and started to question that, and like my, my older brother questioned it first, so he, <laughs> he cleared the path, you know, and it was okay, you know, once we kind of, just, my mum realised we were adults and we were, you know, it was fine, there wasn't any great punishment about it, but there was a period I can I remember before questioning, you know, where life was very, very clear, you know, you, the notion of God and forgiveness was a thing. And I would go to confession every now and again, and I'd go in and I'd be like, oh, you know, really scared. And then I'd say, oh, I swore at this this person, or I, I had some thoughts that are not from my age. And I would be told to do something, like some sort of penance. And the feeling of walking out after that penance is if you've just been cleansed and, and you're, you're, you're number one again, you're, 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 you're on the you're on the good side. That's pretty irreplaceable in life, you know, as soon as your your logic comes into it, you know. But as a young kid, that was pretty very powerful stuff. The notion that everything's all right. You're you're fine now, you're clean, you've 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 uh, you've scrubbed everything out. But yeah, it's dark. I mean, I suppose when you think back at the notion the whole notion of sin and, and all that stuff is really crazy. No, I remember that being something that, that I kind of missed in life, getting forgiven and it being yeah it being convincing. <laughs> Do you feel that experience with religion manifests itself in your songwriting at all? In your lyrics? Specifically. I don't know. I mean, religion's a very funny word. I'm a very spiritual person. I see the universe and I see the joy in it and I see the patterns. And I see the notions of the organized religions out here and it's all very problematic. But underneath it all, it's all kind of the same thing, you know? Yeah. And uh, yeah, of course it's in the music. Of course, I'm not a Bible basher by any week way, but the, the morality and the general bigger picture of, of what religion tries to tackle or what's, what science doesn't really answer, what spirituality sort of draw, I get drawn to that sort of stuff. Yeah, they, yeah. There's a song I wrote, called, I wrote a while back called Should I Pray? And it was a, kind of in the aftermath of a horrible thing that happened here. There were some young men were brought up in a certain religion and ended up going out and, you know, blowing themselves up and blowing a lot of people off. And I just put myself in the shoes of another person in that community and seeing that happen and being like 10 years old and think, God, should I go? That's really dangerous to, to, to get really swept up in that stuff. You can end up losing everything. And, and yeah. So that, that side of religion is definitely worth questioning. But the, the kind of bigger thing that's, that survives through the, the centuries of, why we're here, who we are, what's all this about? You know, science doesn't really get all, answer all that stuff, you know? Right. In terms of you growing up with music, I can, okay, so I can clearly recall when I first heard music, it was Kiss, Thompson Twins, a little bit of Led Zeppelin, 
Johnny Cash from my dad, and The Cure. The Cure kind of opened another dimension. Yeah. Tell me about a time where music really impacted you. Well, that would be when I was young, very young. I mean, I was outdoors, kind of running around in the woods and all that stuff for a while. And then we had a, an old stereogram, they used to call it, in the house, which was like a piece of furniture where you'd open the lid and there'd be a record deck, a record player and there'd be a radio part and there'd be a little bit you could do the albums. And my parents had three or four records. I was thinking about this the other year and it was the records were quite young. There was the Dravel's Bolero and they had uh, Bommy Makem and the Clancy Brothers live at, in, I don't know where it was, maybe New York. And they had a single. There are a couple of the singles were "19th Nervous Breakdown," "The Rolling Stones," and "Laughing Gnome" David Bowie. So it's quite eclectic sort of bunch of stuff. But yeah, the "Laughing Gnome" really got me as a record. But my big brother he had a brilliant record collection. Things like Bob Dylan and and this would be like seventy five, seventy three, seventy four, seventy five. And he had just all this sort of classic stuff. He had really good taste. So I started exploring that and and uh, the, the headphones just became this amazing place I could go and, and, and you know, travel to other places with, with, with music. One big thing that happened in the, later on was the advent of the Walkman. Mm-hmm. You could have music wherever you went. That was a huge, huge thing. You know, you could wander the streets and, and, <laughs> and lost, be lost and stuff. And it was all very mobile, you know, the cassette and all that thing. Yeah, but those early years of just music was this magical thing. I'd put my headphones on and I'd get lost. And, you know, things like even Genesis and Thin Lizzy and Yes and, and as you say, Led Zeppelin. The notion of what these people were singing about was kind of otherworldly anyway. There wasn't a lot of mundane, mundane stuff in it. It was always quite, I don't know, theatrical or something, lyrically. I was always drawn to lyrics for some reason. I don't know why. And when I was listening to music, it would always be the guitars and the singer that I would I would identify with. You know, I'd mime along with and get, get put myself in their shoes in these songs and try and get into the, the headspace of where they were taking me. It took it was much better than real life, you know, in a lot of ways. And as I got a little bit older, I started to like the, the sort of punk stuff where there was lyrically there was things I could really understand, and it wasn't so otherworldly. It was more real worldy stuff and very appealing because done always done in a very sort of poetic way and. And that kind of thing. But yeah, the early years were pretty spectacular. You know, the notion of playing a guitar or knowing what chords were, not nowhere near my head. Just an amazing sensation. I didn't have a guitar until I was like 21 or something. And even then, I was like, well, what is this? Take me a while to get my head around it. So I was just a fan and a listener for, for years, and music was just this place to go that was special. And the, the, the mechanics of it were in my head. Never thought about it. It was just this magical thing that. I kind of kept that. I suppose a lot of kids, when they get to 16, 17, they start to notice, oh, that guy's playing a guitar, and look at that amp. I was never any of that. I was just like, this is taking me out of my world, and it was somewhere spectacular, you know? So that's very interesting, and I would love to know, when you are starting to hear the prowess of guitarists and what they could do, was there a specific guitarist that really took you by storm? Well, yeah, I mean, I suppose the great Brian Robertson, Scott Gorham from Thin Lizzy, very melodic guitar players. You'd hear bluesy stuff, but it was never, never really overblown. A lot of the kind of bluesy stuff, I kind of, like your Jimmy Pages, I kind of admired when I was young. 
I'm just talking about it as a listener here. Yeah. The kind of bluesy style was something that for some reason never captured me. And then, as I said, when the punk stuff started coming in, there was there was some great, like Paul Weller, that was a brilliant guitar player, really moody. It was all about the mood, whether it was anger or or or, or melancholy. He could he could choose chords and choose sounds that would really suit that in a, in a quite a limited lineup. Later on, Johnny Marr and Roddy Frame or two of the guitar players. Again, not too bluesy, but especially with Roddy Frame, he had a great sort of chord palette. You know, it wasn't just, just, this is after I got to know the guitar a bit more. It wasn't any of the kind of stuff that you'd learn on page one with Roddy Frame. It was like chords from, from various, I don't know where he'd get, where he got them. I found later on, I got a lot of South American chord, chord shapes, whole beam, some amazing shapes that conjure up moods that you, that you just rarely find guitar players use. And Roddy would use bits of that. Some of the funk guitar players in Man for Chic, you know, amazing. But Johnny Marr, just melodic. Melody was the thing. I suppose that's the key that even going back to when I was young. Steve Hackett's another one from the early Genesis records. Very melodic, very tonally aware. Yeah. And it's all about the atmosphere. It could it could show off, yeah, you know, but that was never the thing. The appealing thing was the melody and the choice of tone and the choice of sound and the space, you know. And there was another guitar, John McGeer, who played with the Banshees and a few others. Stuart Adamson, another amazing guitar player. Yeah. But I suppose when I looked at it now, it's all about the melody and the mood. Never about, you know, showing off or, or technique or whatever. Nick Drake's another cracker, you know, just for just for the mood and the style of the sound, acoustic guitar player. That is, that's another interesting bit because... I've seen you perform live here in the Bay Area many times, mm. and I've never really seen the band, any of the members, go off. No, 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 no. It's, you're right. It's all about the, staying the melody, staying within the parameters of the song. You might extend a song here or there, just tweak it a little bit, but you're absolutely right. Yeah, that's just with the, what, what we gravitated towards. You know, we're not, we're, we're not, we do jam and, you know, when we're just rehearsing and working songs up, but it's just a means to an end. Yeah. You get the mood right and get the parts right and get the kind of balance right of what everyone's playing. Yeah, that seems to be the trash cans thing. There's not a, not a lot of jamming goes on, on so, stage. Tell us, I mentioned it earlier in the, in the, in the intro, the galloping gunshot boys. <laughs> How did that experience shape you as an artist, musician? Well, let me describe what they were like. They were quite a mythical band. I, was, I left Irvine when I was young, very young. I came back, and when I came back, there was a music scene. It might have been before I left, but I didn't know anything about it. But when I came back, there was a music scene. And this is maybe talking about 84, 83, 85, those kind of three years. So there's a lot of post-punk things. There was a band called Rebel Dance that was a sort of Clash-style band. There was a band called The Dead Souls that were a sort of Joy Division band. It's a kind of mod thing going around. There was various, various things. And they're all done with, with sincerity and done well, actually. You know, they, they, when I think back on how those bands, had, you know, they, were, they were great. And the Gunshot Boys, who I, I didn't see live, they'd sort of stopped playing live just as I came back. They were sort of people who talked about them and... and you know, in hallowed terms, you know, and kind of wow, they're 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 the boys, you know, the great great sort of presence, great guitar player, 
double bass player. They had the best record collections in town, these musicians, you know, they were all the same age as us, but they were the coolest dudes, you know, they, 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 were, they got the right clothes, they, they, you know, they were just sharp and on it, you know, they'd investigated everything and found the good stuff everywhere. Davy Hughes was the sort of singer lyricist. So he was kind of very poetic. And uh, I just, the first show I played was myself and my brother. I played guitar and he played drums and we just, we supported, I think, Dead, the Dead Souls, the Joy Division. Sound and band are ticked. And it was just me and my guitar and singing and Paul, my brother, playing drums. And it was a lot of fun. Again, it was one of the things, we went to play it and didn't expect anyone to like us, but we got applause and it was like mind-blowing. I didn't really expect to be liked, but people liked us. But David Hughes was at the show and he, he, and he says, do you want to use my guitar to play with? And it was a much better guitar than mine. So I said, yeah, sure. Aye. And that was kind of one of the first times I'd, I'd had a reasonable conversation with this guy because he's quite a mythical character. Still is quite enigmatic because you're David. Yeah. So and, and, uh, after a few years, I was in some other bands and, and the Gunshot Boys started playing live again. And the, the drummer, we parted ways with Paul, the drummer, and they were playing with a drum machine. But the songs had bits where there was gaps and drumming machine had to stop and come back in with a slightly different pattern. And they had some timbales and stuff. And I was just so pleased to be playing with these these sort of local heroes, you know, re- real myth, mythical guys. There's only two or three shows. But I'd rehearsed with them a lot and I just got to know them. And it was, to be in their company, it made me my confidence take a few steps up. And if they think I'm all right, then I must be all right. Because these are the sharp dudes. These, these know what music is. And... You know, if they recommend a film, it's going to be a great film. If they show you a book to read, it's going to be a great book. You know, those kind of guys, they're rare, but in our town, the three of them ended up in the, the Galloping Gunshot. Whereas, and to this day, it's the same. If Davy says, oh, you should see that film or watch that book, you know, you know it's, it's going to be a winner. Okay, so I would mentioned to you, I think in the Messenger, that I don't want this conversation to really about trash can Sinatra's. What I want to focus on is you as an kind of a musician as an artist and what i want to know is when you are working either on solo work tcs stuff what does a good work day look for you what does that look like well that a good work day would be i've got a, i've got a place that i go to i leave the house for a start oh you do okay yeah i have to get away from the phone in the door and the stuff you know if you're at home there's always something there was always something to do. And I, for years, I, I didn't do, I, I was okay with that. You know, I'd, I'd find a little corner, and I'd, I'd go away, bury, bury myself away. But I've found it's much better if I go away. And I, I, there's a sort of set of garages down here, converted lock-up garages that are little business spaces. And I got to know a few jazz musicians who said that they shared this place and they run a little calendar and I could chip in with the rent. And whenever it was free, I put my name in the calendar and say, I'll be down there. So a great, a good work day would be me waking up and I've booked my day. I'll go down about nine or 10, okay. get, a, get a breakfast. If it's cold, I'll put the heating on, go for a coffee, come back. And then just, it's, there's no internet, there's no phones. I shut the door, there's no neighbours. So there's no self-consciousness, basically. So I can just, um, and I've got a little setup with my, my laptop and a microphone and some headphones, nice guitar. And just just get lost for for a while, and if something comes up, I'll hone it a bit. If I'm working on some, if something comes up, generally that's what the, that's what the next two or three days will be. I'll be working on, and uh, that's and then come home and have my dinner and go back into family life. But if I could do that every day, I would do it every day. Yeah, 
Yes, I'm, I go out on the road at times, and sometimes the rooms not not available, or there's just stuff to do. Sure, yeah. sure. But that's my ideal thing. So get to focus when I'm away from the phone and the door and the chores and the things and and, and all the good stuff as well. You know, I just focus, and that's when things happen. Oh, that's uh, that was good advice somebody said to me a while back. If you show up constantly, sh- songs will show up. You just got to be there. If you're busy doing loads of stuff, you might get the odd thing. But not as much as if you just every time you can go to a space and play and see what happens. So as a musician, sure you have found it like a writer, times when you have uh, hit a wall. Oh yeah. So what do you do when you feel stuck with your songwriting? Well, there's I mean, I've only had one time where I was kind of seriously stuck for a while, but before that, what I would do like if I was messing about the guitar and nothing was happening or I was or I was I was stuck in a rut of trying one technique. I would do silly things. Not silly things, but just I'd turn on the radio. When I was playing on the radio, that's the tempo. Turn it off, right? That's the tempo I'm gonna start playing. That's the beat I'm gonna use. I just do that for a little while. I'll just go away from the music altogether, go and read something and whatever words are appealing to you, write them down, see where that takes you once you get a bunch of them together. Say, or a newspaper, whatever's going on, just grab some words and see, see what it takes you. Or the other great thing is just com- go completely away from it. Go read a book, go play a video game, go get a bit, bit of food, cup of tea, go for a walk's a good one, and just come back with some fresh ears. And when you're away, just don't think about it, no pressure. But uh, there was a time when I got stuck, really stuck, nothing was happening. And that's why I, I basically, that's why I started doing the, the kind of solo thing. I was so wrapped up in how songs sound with the band and it's got to have a feel, it's got to have a thing. Or working on things that, that I'd played to the band and we got to a stage where it was, it just all it needs now is, is, is words or, or some sort of melody ideas and then getting stuck, 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 stuck. And uh, so I thought, right, I'm going to, I need to change. There was a few other reasons, but that was a big reason. And as soon as I picked up the guitar to rehearse, to play a show where I'm, I'm going to be standing there on my own playing guitar, that whole concept was like a new, a new avenue. Oh, I've never written songs with that in mind. That's what, that's what I, I'll just be me singing. And if I'm going to do that, it has to be a certain, I have to have a certain connection with it. Right. And a couple of songs arrived really quickly without much thought. And, I, and, I, and I've done it for about a year. I've been out playing and I really enjoy the space of, of walking on stage and just me and a guitar. And, and I, it's like an apprenticeship, you know, and, to get to my age and start an apprenticeship is pretty, you know, pretty good going. It's refreshing, very refreshing. But now when, I, when the guitar's around, I'm just very happy to pick it up. And some of that's going back to stuff, the trash can stuff, or new songs will arrive that might fit into the trash can stuff. And other ones are just, I'll be quite happy to just stand on a stage and play them to folk and, and see how they go down. Forgive me for asking this question, but are you a good sleeper? Because I imagine stuff is running through your head all the time. Well, I mean, are you, are you a 2 a.m. kind of person? Uh, yeah, I'm a night hawk. Yeah. Definitely a night hawk. Always have been. I think from early days, that's where things got quiet. The phone didn't ring and <laughs> no one came to the door. So you would get your space there. Obviously, it could be hard to get to make a noise at that time of night. You know, you need to find a place. But always a night hawk, even from back when I was living with my mum and dad. So I would. I would sit downstairs, you know, I'd be up late watching telly, 
and when I had a guitar, I'd potter about with that. Not with any great volume, but, you know, it's a piece of peace and, and space. That's what I used to get at night. Family life, that's not so much, you know. I'm quite happy getting up early and going and going and playing. And these days, I mean, I don't, I get quite broken sleep anyway, you know, when I get to my age, you know, there's always, <laughs> you know, function. <laughs> I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. Success is a very broad term. It's a very subjective word. We can define it however you want. But I want to know how you would define it in the work that you do with TCS or solo work. How, what is success to you? Oh, success when, you, when you've got it on tape, when you've finished the recording and, and, and you're happy with it. It's been, you've been on a journey with it to sculpt it or shape it, whether it's just me, myself, or whether it's with a band. And when it's with the band, it's wonderful. We're all okay. We're happy. You know, we've got that together. You, you quickly move on to the next thing. But when you've done something that you're, you're chuffed and you've just got it right, whether it's a song or whether it's an album with a running order or the artwork or a video or a gig or a tour, you know, there's a point when it was when it's done and, and it's all went well. But it's pretty priceless, that stuff, the success. But I think generally the success, I would judge success by I enjoy what I do. Yeah, and always have, even when it's frustrating and troublesome. Underneath all that, there's always well, it's good fun. You know, it's it's there's an enjoyment to it. And through the lean years or in the good years, you know, when I look back, I think, well, that's I've been, I've really enjoyed the process. I still do it now, enjoying the process of writing a song. And yeah, you know, the last time you came to the Bay Area, hmm. I remember sitting there amongst a sea of trash can fans and i remember this there there is an energy in that room like i said i've seen you guys perform many times but there is a different chemistry different energy that was very palpable mm. and i remember as you guys were rolling through the songs the energy was building and building and swelling and i remember thinking wow we don't need ten thousand people in a room to feel like a community here, right? Oh, okay. Yeah. And it was, such a, it was that communal feel and people were singing, people were stomping their feet. That to me, very, it's like, that was so successful, that tour and how people were speaking about you guys on the on, you know, Facebook page and all that. So yeah, to me, that was kind of like, I don't want to say defining moment, but it was one of a very, memorable indelible moment i've had in following you guys oh that's good i think there's a kind of resonance when when uh, when years go by and people have stuck to their guns whether it's as a listener and still being rewarded you're not being let down you know the records are still something that that, that you treasure yeah and life has went on and you you, you know you, the older you get the more sort of nonsense you leave behind and Trivia tends to go. So when things are resonant with you and, and they've been with you for a long time, oh, that's much. That's a really strong, strong thing. I get that as well. When artist, an artist comes to town that's been through the wars a bit or whatever, but they're stuck to their guns, and it's always there has always been a quality to what they do. You know that that beats the kind of early days in, in a lot of ways, even though the early days are super exciting and yeah, yeah. you know it's all about possibilities and stuff and and you're forming your own personality and trying to figure out who you are. But when you're an older thing, there's a, there's a real gorgeous sort of resonance to that. And nights like that, and that sounds like where it sort of becomes a bit visible. Everybody's in the room, and they know these guys have 
they're rarely in town as well. They're like rare birds, you know. <laughs> you come these guys with a crazy accent that only appear every ten years. You know, it's it's kind of that's they've got its own special thing as well. But I, I that's that's nice that you noticed that. <laughs> oh, it was it was so discernible. It was it was it was amazing. So with all the success that you've had as a musician and all the verbal accolades as you continue to go through your career, how do you stay humble? Because, I mean, I'm sure you've seen in the TCS community page, the reverence that people hold, not just for you, but for every member of the band, you know, glowing reviews of the tours and the, and the, and, the, and all this, all the time and efforts you put into your albums. How do you stay humble as an artist? Well, it's never been a temptation to be anything else. It's all a bit of a distraction, to be honest. You know, the, the, the listening to reading reviews or, or listening to, I don't go on message boards. I think in the early days when they were like, what's a message board? You'd go on, you check and you'd say, oh, great. You know, it's nice to know that, in fact, really good to know that people were appreciating what you did. Yeah. You know, especially because, you know, we've not been the greatest touring band over the years. We've done it a lot, but not as not as much as other bands. So to see to read things where people are connecting with you and getting it, it's very, uh, very. Uh, it's like pet puts petrol in the tank. You're not. You know, if I think if we were doing this in a vacuum, it would never. We probably would never have done so much music. But humility, I don't know. I mean, it's one of those things. If you're bought from where we, we're kind of working class lads from the west of Scotland, not the big city, and sticks. There's a certain sort of under. Undercut, under not under confidence, but under. We'd, it's very hard to blow around trumpet. You know, we think we've always found that a hard instrument to play. And so, for for other folk to do, it, it's brilliant. But for us, it just felt like let's just focus on making the music, and and, and get that get our kicks out of that. Yeah, and uh, that, but that way we're safe. You know that that's the thing we've always protected. You know, in the early days, we were quite shy, but. You know, doing interviews and doing videos, and I was very underconfident. And I think at, at its heart, we were just protecting what, what what we do. We love doing stuff together, and it, and it has a it works. So let's just focus on that. Everything else is ephemeral. You know. So I've had numerous conversations with my uh, co-pilots Keith and Mark, and Lovely. one thing we have always found striking about the work that you put into is how meticulous the the details that starting you know starting with the album cover and the work you do with chris dooley and you know working with books it just seems like you're very methodical in your approach where does that come from was that something you inherited from mom is that something that what where is that i think that's more than the artists that, that we can when you first got together there was a lot of artists that were our kind of major touchstones that we all liked and pretty much every one of them did the same thing, from Paul Weller and the Jam to the Smiths, the Clash, the Beatles. You know, everything was everything was done with such detail and such enthusiasm and integrity. You know that it wasn't just flinging records out. These guys had imaginations and they had something to say. You know, and they did pay attention to detail because everything they liked paid attention to detail. You know, like all the great movies or all the great records. You know that's. That, Details matter, you know, you just got to put your full focus on it. And at the time when we were first making records, making a sleeve was a big deal. I don't know how much it is these days with the MP3 world. 
you know, getting all the credits right, because we used to love reading the credits of other albums. Who produced this? Who was the T-boy? Where was it they recorded this? I'd love to, where is that, you know, these magical places? How do you find out as much about it to try and get how people make, make the magic? And designing the sleeves and reflecting yourselves. One of the big things about punk rock and the, the times after that was people were making records that reflected their own character and their own background and their own geography. And it was just as worthy as, as what did Marky e. Smith say? Marky e. Smith from the Falls said, me writing about Presswich in Manchester is just the same as Dante writing his Inferno. It's just it's the same attention and passion goes into it and intelligence goes into it. And I feel very much the same. You know, the movies I like that dwell on, you know, the kind of humdrum lives. But they're the things I find fascinating. So, yeah, attention to details, is, we learned that pretty early on, that that's what we want to do. If we're going to make records, they have to get the sleeves right. If we're going to do videos, we're going to try and get them right, even though that was that was an alien world for a long time. But majorly get the songs right and get the recordings. Yeah, Something that, that, blows, your, that blows our own minds before we put it into the world. Well, it's very well respected in the TCS community. And, you know, people might go, where's the next album? It's not about that. It's when you release something, it's done with so much thoughtfulness and care and respect. So I, I truly respect it and embrace it. Do you mind yeah. telling our listener who you're married to? Oh, my wife, Eddie. Eddie Reeders is a singer, songwriter, fantastic, amazing woman. <laughs> she is. And I want to know how she has helped you grow as an artist and vice versa. Yeah. Well, when we came together, it was like, I mean, you know, that's day one of day one of life. You know, when we came together, we sort of fitted in our outlooks in life and our attitudes to life. And, you know, life just shifted into this other gear. I became a much more wholesome person because, you know, my thoughts were being mirrored and her thoughts were being mirrored and agreed with. And you know, the way we look at life was like the same, you know, sort of searching and, and, and joy, lust for life, as Iggy said. Mm-hmm. And, you know, life life should be rich and full and and busy and 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 you know, or not or contemplative. But it's, whatever it is, it's got to be like a buzz. You know, being being lazy and tired or or sullen or pessimistic. We both went through all those journeys, and it always led to optimism and joy. You know, in the world. So yes, yeah, she she sort of confirmed that this was a great place. <laughs> this this life and this was a precious time, and going to the small stuff. And musically, just I'd always found her amazing as an artist before I knew her sort of personally, and how she sort of navigated her way through the world with the talent she has, real inspiration. So yes, she's made me feel, I suppose, more confident in in what I do. She's always been a fan of the trash can stuff. I mean, not not fan, fans are silly. What just adored it. You know, she thought we were a cut above everything. Should be number one everywhere, and you know, just one of you know. So that was always like a plus. <laughs> But yeah, just just to to live in a house where where music was the main thing, and but mostly it's just a personal difference, you know. When you fall in love with someone and it lasts and it grows and it becomes, right? You just become this thing, you know. That's that's nothing. It's hard to compare to anything else. Sure. I want to talk about your solo album that was released in October of twenty twenty three. Throw me away 
that's where I stay That's where I last Soft as the grass I'm going to mm. get a quote here that right. is done in an interview. You said, I've often been encouraged by friends over the years to make a solo album, but the timing or inclination didn't flow. Last year, out of nowhere, everything suddenly felt right. And the process was quick and natural. Mark just the, the mics up and I played my songs. No other musicians or overdubs. Me and my guitar. Here's my favorite part of the quote. That way I became the songs and they became me. Mm. Can you speak to that a little bit more? Uh, it's just a thing I've noticed over the years, the thing I, I enjoy watching. Like if I'm watching, I do a lot of surfing on YouTube to look for a gold. And I was watching a concert from, the, I think it's the Royal Festival Hall in London from like 19... Possibly early 70s, but I think it's maybe late 60s. It's Frank Sinatra, and he does a version of I Get Along Without You Very Well. And he inhabits it. He becomes the lyric. You know, I'm, I'm lost. I'm listening to this story going, oh, my God, I'm empathizing with the place he is. He talks about the leaves and the trees, and he just can't bear to be reminded of, of this. I mean, even though he's saying, I'm all right, I get this, you know, beautiful, nuanced lyric. But to see someone just step into the song and become the lyric. Even that, it's not even his lyric, but he chose the song because he, he, he knew the feeling. Eddie's always done that with her song, she becomes the thing. Yeah, And it's always, if I'm writing, if it's the trash cans, it's writing to make Frank sing that he has to become the thing. He has to get it and shift it and move it till he's the thing. I might have come up with some raw material, but he will mould it and sculpt it and add his own raw material or Paul's, you know, so this thing that he can become. Because the songs are king in our world, you know, it's not anything else. It's song, that's what we do, you know. But, so, yeah, that, that's the truth of it. If I can write a song or I choose a song where I'm going to stand there on my guitar and I'm going to sing it, I'm not going to sing it just, or my purpose is for folk to sing along or for folk to, you know, get off on the story of a lyric. It's just about to become it so that people get lost. If I get lost in it, they all get lost in it. That's the way I look at it. That's what happens to me if I see somebody not lost. Lost is a different, is a kind of got wrong connotations, but you know what I mean. Inhabit, you can inhabit it like a brilliant, a brilliant actor doing a scene. They become the thing. Acting is a tough word for that stuff. I think it's, I think it's too reductive. When someone becomes something enough to make you empathize, that's powerful stuff. So, with this solo adventure and songs like Orange Crowns, Lost so on and so forth. How do you feel like you've grown as an artist? I think it's always been the same approach. I think maybe little bits of style have changed over the years, like, you know, my tastes when I was younger are probably slightly different now. So, yeah, there'd be little little taste things. I'm just a bit more confident, I suppose. I'm, I'm kind of aware of my lifespan as well. I had health issues which sort of made me quite aware of that. What do you mean by that? I got, I got this thing called ulcerative colitis, where it was quite serious. It just came on one Christmas. I, I'd noticed there was some blood in my output, and I thought it was like a hemorrhoid thing or something minor. And I eventually had to go in and 
you know, they, they, they would put cameras to inside to see what was going on. And they did that twice. And the second time, they, they put in a little bit and says, listen, we're going to have to knock you out. And then when I woke up, the guy says, listen, it's uh, not cancer, but it's really serious. It's this thing called colitis. You're about, my whole colon was like mm. inflamed, you know, it was attacking itself. Yeah. So there was three, a year of, of on various medicines to try and put it into remission. And that didn't work. So there was like an operation to take it out and do this kind of Frankenstein thing. But it was like a, a real kind of, it was crazy few years. But um, it made me think, you know, if the, if the, if the science, I mean, it's a relatively new operation, which made me okay now. I don't have the condition anymore. I don't have a colon, which is cool. I don't have, I can't ever get colon cancer. <laughs> Silver lining. But if that, that's only a relatively new advancement. If that, if that operation hadn't been, if I'd have got this maybe 10 years ago, or maybe, no, maybe not 10, maybe 15, 20 years ago, I'd be, I, I would be, I would have to be living with this disease when I'd be, I'd be a major fatigue. I'd get attacks. I wouldn't be able to work. So I, I possibly I, I wouldn't have left. I wouldn't be here on the planet because it was quite a serious internal bleeding thing going on. So yeah, that going through all that and coming through the other end of it and, and have my wife and my friends cheering me on all the way yeah, and sussing out how science can help me. And it just made me just look at everything in a, in a totally different way, you know, and my age anyway, you know, I'm getting on a bit. So yeah, I'm very... I suppose I'm just more aware of of just be busier, do things, you know, and make sure it's of the quality and, and do everything that you're ambitious about. And for some reason, the notion of doing it myself with a guitar, I had to admit to myself, yeah, this is something I'd like to do. You know, I love the band, and, and if I could play with the band every night, I'd be doing that, but I'd still probably go, I'd quite like to go to myself and do the guitar thing because it's different. It's a different skill. Yeah. With, thank you for sharing that personal information, by the way. The, anybody's ever listening that's got ulcerative colitis or, or, or you know, is diagnosed with it, I'm on Facebook and I'm very happy to chat about my experience and, you know, tell folk in because it was, it was a mystery to me. I'd never heard of the condition. Yeah. Since then, all the way through it, I would phone strangers from Facebook and just say, can I chat to you? And they would talk me through and put my mind at ease and, you know, really helpful sort of bunch of people out there that got it. So, you know, if I'm if I can be any help to anybody that's going through the similar, reach out. I'm on your Twitters and Facebooks, and I'm happy, happy okay. to. Thank Facebook. you. Thank you for sharing that as well. I'm sure people, and you've had some amazing conversations. Wow, what an impactful experience. Yeah. I wouldn't recommend that, but, you know, here I am, and, and, I'm, and I'm wiser for it. <laughs> I, I had a student that had it, and I would speak to the mom <laughs> often on how we are going to get through the school year because it's a very serious situation. Oh, absolutely. And the boy and I had a code <laughs> during oh. class, a very private code that no other student knew about. Mm -hmm. And it, it bonded us. And yeah, it was a very unique situation I never dealt with before, but it gave me a lot of empathy, truly. Great. Well, well done for helping them out. That's you know, it's quite a tough thing to get your head around some of the some of the things. Yeah, I, I can imagine. Okay, so with this album, you would this was mastered mixed by Mark Freegard. Do you want to tell the audience who Mark is, what he's known for? Uh, he did he did the Breeders records in the eighties. I think he did some Pixie stuff. He worked with so many people over the years, and big big 
I mean, there's a lot of records in that period, probably 90s, that would have his name attached to it. Major, major producer back yeah. in that time. And he met a girl from Glasgow, settled down in Glasgow. I think she passed away and he he's, he's married now again, but he loves the city. He's not retired, but he's he's got like a home life and he loves it. And he, he's got like a setup in his house for mixing. He does mixing and mastering these days. But I, I did a few records with Eddie. That's how I got to know him. And I thought it was brilliant on the hoof. He'd set up, he'd have a full band in a room, like drum kit, a room like the size of a bedroom, double bass, and and somehow he'd managed to make it, you know, everything recaptured with a little bit of separation so you could mix it and just get a great sound out of that whole environment. And the band themselves worked be- much better in that kind of, like a gig almost, you know, being close together and could observe and, be in the moment and he was a master at doing that so i knew if i was if i wanted to record myself with a guitar he'll be able to do it well and he'll be able to tell me that's the best take okay. you know don't need to do any more you've got it you know and it was for, it was always a third take for some reason <laughs> it wasn't the stanley kubrick 98th take <laughs> no no we never went beyond four or five and it was always the third so it's very quick i think i did the whole thing in four hours I'm quite sort of chuffed with the whole concept of doing it. When I first said, I began telling a few friends around town I was going to do this record. I wanted to do it just me and my guitar. Yeah. And I've got a few musician friends and they said, listen, you're going to get bored. After four songs, you're going to want to bring in a piano player or a somebody to do a solo. And I thought, well, you may be right. Okay, I'll just go and see what happens. Yeah. And, I, and I didn't. <laughs> so I was all right. I proved myself correct. It really is a warm sounding album. There's something very contemplative about it. Great introspective work, wonderful songwriting. Is there was there a particular song on the on the album that was a grind, was a true struggle? No, no, they were all pretty. There are things I've been playing for a while, yeah. or there were things that were just fresh. There's a couple of them were just fresh and just arrived. No, there was nothing that was a struggle. You know, like the what's it on it? The prefab sprout cover. I mean, I I used to go busking. I, I played that quite a lot. And, and every, every now and again, I just sit and strum the chords. And, you know, it's just kind of in my bones. Yeah. How to play that, you know, it's a drop of a heart. I could play that. And some of the, there's a couple of songs on there that nearly made Trash Cans records. They were kind of in the frame for, one of them was in the frame round about the I've Seen Everything time. Never quite made it. So they've been around for a while. And I would always, over the years, now and again, I'd just sit and play it to myself. So by the time I come to do this, you know, I, did, I knew them inside out. You know, it was just a matter of getting the, performance right and then yeah. as i say get get inhabit that how much energy and time was spent into the actual flow from track to track do you put a lot of thought into that well what i did was the guy the the, the label that it's out on review records brought it out and the head on show of them was a guy called tom rose and he's put out eddie's records recently Put out Chris Drever records, Booth Dean, Blow. Very well respected. All kind of singer songwriter maybe a bit of traditional folky, but very acoustic y. What's the word? Yeah, acoustic instruments, real instruments. He's a big fan of that. And that's been all through his, his, I think Jonas Policeman. They put out Jonas Policewoman's first record. Still does, I think, puts out that record. It's a great taste. And he was the kind of major guy that said, I love your your band but i love your songs and you should do a solo record i've been saying that about 15 years <laughs> but he was the first guy i went to and says i want to do this and they said well do it you know just send me stuff 
So I went into my little rehearsal room and I recorded all those songs just live. And I said, you, you um, help me out with the choices. And there was a few, he says, these, these are good, but these ones are, this is your album bunch. And I did them with Mark and I said, do you choose the running order? I, I trust your, your ears more than mine. Because yeah. I was a bit too close to it. You know, I was, and he, and he said, when I first heard, when I first listened to it, I was like, wait a minute, that's, that's quite surprising. I wouldn't have done that. And then I lived with it for a couple of weeks and I thought, actually, it's great. It flows really well. All the kind of, there's a, there is a mood to it, but there's quite a kind of bunch, there's quite a different style, bunch of styles in there. And he just made it work. And everybody said the same. It's sort of got a really lovely flow to it. So, yeah, I had, my, I had faith in the guy because he, he liked my stuff. And he's very genuine. And he's got good ears. So, Did you get some two thumbs up from the galloping gunshot boys? <laughs> <laughs> Well, yes, actually, I'm in touch with one of them. One of them lives in New Zealand now, Stephen, and he he said it was good. Davey liked it. I don't know where the other ones are. Ramey, I'm not sure those he is. But yeah, generally, I've got everybody cheering me on. All the jazz clans are like, it's, it's, it's good, it's got a thing. And every time I wander on stage, I can just know they're going, go on, John. So yeah, how they're... are these? So I want to know, because I, I get some snippets from you know people in the community that have gone and see your solo shows. It seems like those shows have been received with great, you know, success from the audience and happiness and all that good cheer. Yeah, that's true. But I've only, I've, all I've done so far is play support slots, opening opening slots. So it's always been to, there's been people there that know me, but for the most part, it's been someone else's audience. Yeah. It's been very friendly. And it's been the acts that I've played with are kind of acoustic acts. So it's kind of, been, I'm in, in the same ballpark. It's been refreshing and good for me to to play to that. Yeah. You know, to, these people don't know me; they don't know my catalogue or my history or any of that. So I'm just going to choose the songs and play the ones that I think will work well for for this particular evening. And uh, it's went over well. And I could do, I think, at the end of the year, I could do about forty minutes without any worries. But I've got shows lined up in in May this year in the UK where I'm I'm headlining, so my name will be on the ticket. So I need to get about an hour and 15, an hour and 20. So I'm, I'm kind of in rehearsal just now, getting that together. <laughs> but it's exciting. You know, it's fun. It's a lot of fun. We have just a few more questions here. Mm. Okay, so for people that wanted to jump into this career as a, a musician, what advice would you give them? Uh, enjoy the process of whatever it is you're doing. You know, when you start making a piece of music, if you can enjoy that process and get to the end of it and be feel rewarded by what you've done that's kind of it you know things can come and go but if you enjoy that you continue doing that's a friend you know it's a place to go and yeah. feel like at comfort with yourself and know that it's your it's your your talents your thing is making this happen no one else can do that a little you know filling up the silence quite the way you do but the motivation should always be just enjoy the process everything else is of course, be ambitious. Of course, of sure. course, yeah. want to communicate. Of course, yeah. but it's core. You've got to enjoy the, the process of doing it. Yeah. With you alluded to artists, bands that you grew up listening to, would you mind telling our listener and our viewers that some albums that you would recommend? Yes, there's a recent one by Tim Smith. I think his name is. It was the singer in Midlake. Okay. He's got a, a new album. The album's called Albion, and the band, which is, I think it's him and his wife, are called Harp, H-E-R-P, and it's a beautiful, 
it's a gorgeous, you know, mid-lake, you know, the vocal tone and kind of lyrical slant it's got. It's a beautiful listen. And again, it's, got, it's a gorgeous mood from start to finish and it's got depth and lyrically and, yeah, just a great record. Great. That's one. What else is there? Oh, the guy called Declan O'Rourke, an Irish singer-songwriter. His last album was called Arrivals. Again, beautiful songs. He's got a lovely rich baritone voice. And a great sort of personal way with lyric. He tells a story and you know it's true. <laughs> and it's fantastic. a great way of looking at life. Quite profound sometimes and, and other times just quite telling you a tale of what happened last night. Yeah, Brilliant. Brilliant songwriter. That's called Arrivals. What else? I don't know what else do I listen to. I've, I've got to go with Rough and Rowdy Ways, the last Bob Dylan record. Oh. That's beautiful, beautiful record. Very uh, moody, sort of hangs in the air. There's not a lot of big drums on it. And lyrically, you know, it's a feast, total feast. Yeah. Yeah, go with it. Have you seen Dylan in concert? Yeah, I went to see him. He played here last year. I mean, I could go on if you want. It was amazing. And uh, Eddie actually knows Tony Garnier, his bass player. She played a festival in Sweden a couple of years back, and he was. There, not with Dylan, and they got on and they chatted and got a lot of house on. So, Dylan was playing at the Hydro here, and he Tony came round in the afternoon. I didn't know he was coming, there was a bang at the door, and I opened up. And I knew who it was. That's the guy who bought that. Hi, is Eddie in? Uh, <laughs> so, he came in and he had tea, and he was just talking about his life and stuff, and how things were on the road. And we went the night we went to the gig. and we went backstage. We didn't meet Bob. He was, you know, there was a lot of kind of COVID stuff going on. So it was quite a kind of paranoia about that. But we had a couple of friends that got a real kick out of meeting Tony. And uh, and the show was just amazing. And the band are stunning. Again, quite a moody show. But the beautiful thing was, I'd seen Dylan before. And whenever he's got a new record out, he'd play like one or two songs. And then he'd play the catalogue. This, he played pretty much every song on the new record. And his diction was beautiful. Okay. My, my friend said his theory is that, you know, he did all those Sinatra records, sort of old time. I think that made him really clear up his diction, okay. really focus on getting the words across. Because uh, maybe in the past that wasn't so much a big deal. It was more the sort of effect. But the show, it was just like every word was crystal clear. And his voice has got that age and, and wisdom in it now. And, and just to be in the same room as him and breathe the same air is quite a treat in itself, you know. I mean, great gig. Yeah, but it's a great album, a really beautiful record. Well, his bootleg series, now that he's been releasing, is fantastic as well. Yeah, absolutely. I got a kick. You know, he's got the Bob Dylan Center in Tulsa. I don't know if you know about that. Bob Dylan, some millionaire, bought bit of Bob's archive and opened this thing called the Bob Dylan Center in, in Tulsa in Oklahoma. And the guy who runs it wrote to me, he's a, he's a Trash Cans fan. <laughs> so I like, how's it going? He's like, oh man, I've seen you there and I've seen you there. I knew I'm doing this amazing gig where I'm running the Bob Dylan set. Oh. So he said, next time I'm in Tulsa, I'm going to bang the door and he said, give it to her. So small world, isn't it? It's a crazy small world. <laughs> What's next for John Douglas and or Trash Can Sinatras? Well, Trash Cans, we're, we're recording. Frank's over just now, as I said earlier, and I have been in the studio. We've got a couple of songs that are finished, mixing-wise, and done all that. We're working on more in the ideal world. We're really hoping to have something to come out in the autumn. There'll probably be another couple of recording sessions in between now and then. But that that's our goal. We'll try and get something out this year towards the end of the year, you know, realistically. 
But it sounds great. It's uh, it's got a lot of tempo to it. The guitars are back. <laughs> Frank's singing like a bird. You know, it's great. It's it's a very 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 exciting, very exciting place to be. And myself, I'll be doing some shows in May. Great. And as usual, hopefully writing more songs and doing all that. And I'll be out in the road with Eddie as well. We're doing a bunch of shows. Outstanding. We're busy, busy. Outstanding. Okay, I've got a surprise for you. All right. Okay. What's this? Are you ready? Absolutely. Okay. Can you see this photograph right here? Uh, let me think. I can see. I, let me see if I can make this big open. Right, right there. Let's Vincent Van Gogh taught here. This is ringing a bell. Is this where Alison lives? <laughs> ah, I met her the other day. Isn't that amazing? But do you know what that thing is right there is? No, I don't know what that is. That would be a very special lamp. Oh, wait a minute. I do know it. It's from the Ice Everything thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now I can see it. Yes, that's fantastic. It's amazing she's still got that. Just fantastic. We were we were a couple when that when that record was being made, so we we chose a lot of furniture together and you know. So, that's amazing. Thank you for that. <laughs> absolutely. When I spoke with her over the summer, we did a trash can kind of honoring tribute thing. And yeah. she was talking about her experiences with you and all this and that and being in that apartment. And all of a sudden I look over, I'm like, <laughs> is that what I think it is? <laughs> she oh it was such a memorable moment. Such a well, well spoken. She moved. John Douglas, Trash Canton Sinatra's um solo artist. Thank you so much for your time being part of this Thank brand you. new podcast called Surprise Cast. Final, final words over to you. Anything else you want to share? Uh, oh, what can you say? Everybody stay healthy, stay safe, have a good time. Yeah, absolutely. And good luck with the podcast. Thank you so much. Uh, my name is W, host of the High Art on the Edge. Thank you for tuning in. And uh, many thanks to John Douglas. Take care, everyone. Ciao. All the best. If I could find the time, I could fare and join them. The city's evening Thoughts turn to leave